Hello, Catherine here. If you're listening to my podcast because you're a fan of wintering, the good news is that my new book, Enchantment, is available now. It's a book about how we can find a way to reconnect with a world that's sometimes hard to live in and even to find magic there. It's available in all good bookshops and please support your local indie if you can. For more information, you can go to katherine-may.com forward slash enchantment. Happy reading. You should celebrate yourself every day, but some days you should celebrate with jewelry. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, Catherine here. Welcome. You might be expecting me to be outside, but I'm actually inside at my desk, sheltering from the weather today. It's incredibly grey outside. I have been for a very blustery walk on the beach, and the whole low tide zone was scattered with crows today. It all looked very gothic. But it was not a suitable place for a microphone, (laughs) so I'm now indoors. I'm having a little think about writing some Christmas cards. We'll see how that goes. I still have the same packet I bought three years ago, which might tell you an awful lot about my skills at writing cards. I'm really excited today to share with you the recording from the True Stories book club that I made with Camille Dungy. She is such a wonderful poet. You may already know her work. But in her memoir, Soil... She talks about the act of gardening and the multiple meanings that gardening might hold for us, the way that we can communicate with the soil through the act of growing plants, but also the way that it communicates a whole history back to us. I think she's extraordinary. I was nervous to talk to her because she's so smart, uh, but I really enjoyed myself. So I I hope you'll love it too. And from now on, I'm going to urge you to listen to these podcast recordings on my Substack. I've been recording a monthly book club for quite a while now with loads of great authors and I've began to realise that actually I'm probably doing a little too much with the book club and with this podcast. So I'm moving solely onto the book club on my Substack. That's katherinemay.substack.com. Some of you will be a bit disappointed about that because you're used to listening on your normal podcast app. But for me... I'm in a big drive towards personal sustainability this year. It's really been my watchword. 
I realised that I was doing a little bit too much. And as I've built up my substack, that means that there's probably less time for other things. I feel like there's a whole archive of wonderful material on this podcast and that maybe that's now enough. And I'm ready to carry on with other projects. It's been amazing to make this podcast. I've talked to so many people and I'll be carrying on talking to to lots of people still, but just in a different place. So if you're not on Substack or don't know what it is, uh, it is a kind of a cross between a blog and a newsletter service. You can sign up for free and you can still get the audio recordings of these book club events for free with tons of interesting people to come. But you can also choose to become a paid member and get lots of extras, extra newsletters, extra live events and get the chance to join a fantastic community of really, really brilliant people. I'll leave that to you. But what you can do is download the Substack app and listen to this as a podcast in there just the same as before. So it's still really, really simple. I will leave you now with Camille Dungee. I hope you'll join me over on Substack and thank you for being here. Welcome to the True Stories Book Club and Camille T. Dungy, welcome. Thank you so much for being here. So nice um, to be here. Thank you. We are here, we are gathered here tonight to talk about Camille's magnificent book, Soil, The Story of a Black Mother's Garden, which I know some of you will have read and some of you will be reading after this. But I received a copy, I don't know, a few months ago now, and I just found so many points in this book that I was going yes like bits of bits of my experience that keyed with it and confluences in our work and I think I I posted quite early on a, a piece that you'd written about male poets at a, a convention and was like oh I recognize this so much <laughs> that behavior that segregates the genders very clearly at these, at these events and at, at that moment I knew that I was desperate to get you onto the book club so welcome and thank you for being here. I'm so glad to be here. Would you like to open by reading a little bit from, from Soil so that we can I get will. into I would love to. Right I'd love to and so Soil is a book-length narrative of a memoir of sorts where among other things thinking about my garden which I working towards rewilding with native plants and and what that means to take an American suburban plot and wild it and leave it brown over the winter and what it means to be a Black family living in a predominantly white community, making <laughs> such statements outside of the house, et cetera. So it's prose most of the time, but I trained as a poet and think often as a poet. And so sometimes poems popped up in the process of creating this book. And I included them in the book to show the diversity really of imaginative potential. (laughs) So I thought I would start with one of these poems, which is about halfway through the book, partially because of the chime (laughs) with the clearing, the substack, and the title of this poem is Clearing. All night, the wind blows, and my mind, my mind is like the hawthorn that loses limbs. They litter the ground, crush the black-eyed Susan, 
scattered buds over rows of lettuce, bean sprouts whose greens are clusters of worry in raised beds. Blown leaves and cracked limbs threaten our foundation. Water backs up in gutters, seeps into the house's walls. But my mind, my mind is not in the house. In the yard's far corner, the eye of my mind rests on a hawthorn branch, shaken, snapping, hectic, then still. The day dawns without anger. The blue jay I've looked for pushes sky off his crest. How splendid his wings and tail. It's not so much that before this he'd hidden himself. It's only that he favored a roost I could not see until the storm thinned the tree. I love that. Thank you so much. That's so... Thank you. Oh, it captures so much of, of what's in the book, actually, this this kind of deep engagement with plants themselves and, and what they can come to mean to us and, and what they can kind of symbolise. Mm-hmm. Can I ask you to kind of set the scene for us where, where this book opens? It, it begins with a kind of new garden, really, doesn't it, that you're, or maybe it doesn't begin, but, that, but we're, we're taken into this, this remodelling of a garden. Right. My family moved from the San Francisco Bay Area to Northern Colorado in 2013. And that house we bought is a lovely late 20th century American suburban house with like, I, I describe it at some point, it's like all squares and rectangles, like a children's drawing of a house. And, um, <laughs> and it had this plot of turf and just a few little juniper bushes and uh, a couple conifers and things to differentiate in height. But it was just green and then this gray river rock. (laughs) And that was it. That was all that existed. And the California Bay Area is a little bit like Eden. Something's always blooming. There's always fruit on the vine. Like it's this kind of lush, wonderful place. And Northern Colorado is the high Western desert. And when the snows come, which can happen somewhat early and can stay happening until June, once things die, there was nothing to look at in this yard except for just gray. Like it just was gray and it was utterly depressing (laughs) for me. So just to sort of push against that sameness and to really begin to think about what should be growing in the space, what could be vibrant and exciting in this Northern Colorado landscape, I started bit by bit to create a different kind of yard. And so we worked towards what we began to call the pollinator project, which was one big lot of grass that we pulled and you know shifted into more of a native plant garden. And the first little project was just like a little four by four square in the front yard. And I kind of moved on from there every season to eventually do the whole lot. And so the book follows that process, but also a lot of it ended up getting written in 2020, which was a year, you know, when things Interesting happened. Interesting times. I think we can... Things happened. <laughs> 
in the world. And I thought I was going to write a book. I had a pretty great grant that I was able to take the year off of teaching and I was going to write a book. And I did, but it wasn't the book I thought I was going to write because I ended up homeschooling my daughter during that time, ended up looking out of our window at all of the things that were going on nationally, particularly connected to social justice and racial justice questions. And since I was homeschooling my daughter, I was like overseeing her history and social studies lessons. Um, And she was in the fourth grade. So it was Colorado and Western history was like what was happening. And there were just all these like really interesting omissions in what was happening in her history work. And so into the book, while I was like thinking about planting this sustainable landscape that supported my non-human neighbors who lived there outside the house, inside the house, I was really thinking about also different questions about sustainability and support and interconnection. And so the book ends up weaving a lot of these environmental Mm -hmm. questions and social questions and cultural questions and ideas of family in ways that I have had not seen very much of in the literary traditional canon Mm -hmm. I was, I was raised learning it's yeah and it's interesting because in the in the book you you kind of make the connection over and over again between gardens and whiteness and the way that gardens have often been used to like reinforce this very like quite formal quite bland social order almost i was i was so interested to read about the is it the residence association that that set rules for for basically what could be in your garden can you can you talk a bit about that i that's a new that's i don't think that quite exists here oh that's fascinating <laughs> um you know and maybe it's a matter of the different ages of our our communities right um so in the states there's a lot of communities that have what we call hoas or homeowners associations there was a different name for them in the community where I grew up in Southern California, but they have very strict covenants about what you could grow and how high your grass could be or different mm-hmm. plantings could be, what kind of plants can exist in, in the yards. I share a quote from the writer Michael Pollan in the book where he says, if a lawn is nature, then it's nature under totalitarian rule. Um, and these HOAs can often be very, very strict about how you maintain the exterior of your home. I was fined by my HOA for leaving a compost bin out where it could be visibly seen from the street, for instance. <laughs> the That's quite a high level of social control, isn't it? That, that yes. they can take over you. That's really... I mean, the only equivalent that I've experienced is living in social housing when I was a child. And there used to be a, a warden that would come around and make sure that as a, as a sort of council tenant, you were keeping your garden tidy. And that always felt really affronting, you know, with sort of this sort of sense that, that they could actually take your home away from you if you didn't keep a tidy garden. And, and you know, like growing up with a single mother, it wasn't easy for her to keep the garden clean and, and you know, work. I mean, she worked three jobs when I was a kid. And I always remember thinking then, God, I don't ever want to live in a place again where I can be under under this constant threat if I don't mow my lawn to the right 
the right height. And, and, you know, I think now as like a homeowner, I have a really scruffy garden most of the time and nobody says a word. Like there's, there's nothing that can come to me from that. Well, one of the problems with that aesthetic of keeping a super tidy garden is that's not actually the way the most truly natural environments work. So if I want to be supporting pollinators and fireflies and um, the kinds of critters that want to live in that underbrush and the messiness and I need to leave the leaves <laughs> down and I need to leave the deadheads up and let things grow to variable heights. So that really strict version of homogenous monochromatic growth patterns is dangerous, as you say, because it threatens particular people who are in more compromised positions from having autonomy and a feeling of safety and security. But it also really harms the viability of the non-human ecosystem that is around us. And so as I was thinking about how do I really actually build a viably sustainable yard, I was confronting both these social cultural dynamics, which as a black family in a white neighborhood, there were stakes, there were real stakes at play for us to say that we were going to create this really different yard. And then there's these giant environmental stakes to demand that we change our ideas of beauty and aesthetics and uh, what what a good looking garden should be. So that we can support the lives around us that need a little bit of clutter. Yeah, I I remember doing an event or attending an event from a naturalist called Mark Cocker a few years ago. And we were walking around this beautiful country house garden with like really lovely billowing kind of, you know, flowers and, and neat lawns. And he said, just stand and listen. It's silent. This garden is not supporting nature in any way. It looks beautiful but it's actually, to all intents and purposes, dead. And then he took us to the edge of their garden where they hadn't mowed a bank. And the life in that, you know, it was singing with crickets and there were birds bustling through to to kind of pick up the insects and and the dead seed heads. And I'd never realised before, like how, what a dead space the suburban garden can be. You know, and, and that's basically about erasing diversity, isn't it? That, that That's exactly what happens when you squash that. You create silence. You create mm. silence and absence or death. Yeah. So I didn't want to mm. do, I didn't want to participate in that in our yard. Mm. And so I have this m- messy, wild <laughs> space. <laughs> yeah. And so, I mean, you, you kind of focused your garden on pollinators, you focused your garden on birds, and soon, you know, people were telling you that they loved watching the, the goldfinches flitting through your gardens and things like that, that the, the environment you created was infinitely more beautiful. Were there any tensions about that? Were there any, any battles you had to fight, or, or were they ready for, for you and your garden? I think when I write about some stories of, of people with real 
you know, a, one woman whose entire yard was raised the, uh, in Tulsa, Oklahoma, and the city came and just destroyed everything she was growing in her yard. Uh, so for, for some people, there are real stakes. I had the conflict with my HOA over the compost bin. Um, but for the most part, I actually was pretty lucky. Mm-hmm. I started small, I think, as part of it. So when I began, my homeowners association had covenants written in about the way the, the yard should look. And I just knew it wasn't right. And so I just started small, which had something to do with time and resources, what I was able to do. I started small and figured that by the time I had been able to do the whole yard, the community would have caught up. And I was right. <laughs> I was right about that. Um, you won well, in the I got yeah. lucky. I did. I won in the end. And, and now my city actually has a incentive program to incentivize people to remove their turf and replace it with native and pollinating supporting low water plants, right? That's the other thing about where we live is um, we have like an incredible water scarcity issue. And so water, like the amount of water that an American lawn takes is just ludicrous. And so the city partnered with the water (laughs) district has this incentive program to do this. Uh, But that happened, you know, in the process of my seven year journey that I described that the city caught up to us. So there's a bit quite early on in the book, and I'm going to try and quote you correctly, where you say every politically engaged person should have a garden. Can you talk about what what you mean by that? It's about water and it's about nature, but I think it's for you, it's about other things too. Yes. I say a little bit later in that section that I find the green of growing things to be soothing and necessary, that that process of growing things and being in touch with soil, with non-chemically treated soil and Mm. growing things has been scientifically proven to be beneficial emotionally and physically for people. Um, So there's a a reset and a rest that comes to me when I'm engaging with the growing world. But also as a politically engaged person, you're always pushing something that doesn't happen at the pace that... (laughs) I would like it to happen. And often it feels like secular. It's like I started, didn't we do this already? And like, we're back at it again. And honestly, being in the garden has helped me understand that that's how life works. Like that's how really, truly vibrant, deeply rooted, sustainable, ongoing life works secularly um, and that there's resting times and there's sort of ugly phases. And and so being around the green of growing things just keeps me grounded in a way of like understanding how change, how positive change can happen. Yeah. It's really clear that there is a big relationship you have with the difficult plants and, and what they might mean. You know, you talk about weeding dandelions with your daughter and and saying to her, like, actually, you know, our ancestors held in slavery would have been obliged to do this weeding. Like we're allowed to enjoy it, but that but there's a kind of connection there that lets you connect and teach and reframe your relationship to the soil, maybe. That might be putting words in your mouth. Well, I mean... 
And that's kind of the words I wrote. <laughs> I don't know. Well, you know. <laughs> Forcing them upon me, Catherine. <laughs> I worry. I worry about everything. <laughs> yeah. I mean, for Black Americans, the whole nature thing can get kind of tricky because being from a cultural community whose very presence on this landscape was mixed in with livestock, with um, forced labor, with being pushed into and written into and legally inscribed into bestial base, horrible connections <laughs> with other animals and plants and landscapes. It, like to then be like, oh, hey, by the way, humans are animals too. Like that's like, <laughs> right? Like that gets like triggering um, yeah. to say that for some people or to hear that um, for some people. Um, so this kind of dance, I feel that a lot of Black Americans do like a like an intellectual dance of like wanting to be connected with the greater than human world, but not that connected, like not connected in a way yeah. that like means a kind of loss of autonomy and will and ability to be celebrated. And so throughout soil, I end up thinking a lot about what what does a deep connection with the environment imply? What are some of the cultural norms that I have received that have limited my ability to have a deep connection with the greater than human world? One of them being this one that I've just described in this sort of lack of sense of safety and autonomy and selfhood, humanhood in certain kinds of connections with the greater than human world. And another one being that white Anglo-American nature writing tradition that seemed to be like, in order to be connected with the world, you have to be completely in solitude. You have to just like walk out to the mountains and uh, find yourself um, <laughs> all by yourself. And like these people who had like, it's like they had no families, no responsibilities. No, like I, it just never made sense to me and doesn't make sense to a lot of people. I think a lot of people are like, oh, I don't read environmental literature because that's what they think it yeah. is. Like it's only about like some lone man on a mountain. And for most of us on the planet, that's just not even a possibility. Like we have families, we have kids, we have elder care, we have jobs, you know, like we yeah. have these sort of ways that we have to keep interacting with people. Yeah. <laughs> and so I, I wanted to really push against that too, right? And with my daughter, like we were kind of having fun that day. Then I was like, but also, you know, there's this historical connection to this work we're doing. And that historical connection then all of a sudden brought a lot of people, like the weight of a lot of people into this outdoor work. Mm. I love that. And it's a big theme in my own work as well. This idea that, you know, we only welcome people into nature who are, yeah, male and solitary and don't, and we, we kind of admire the abandonment of family and responsibilities when we read about nature. And I, I find that deeply troubling. Like I, we, we break our human in, interconnection when we admire this kind of great striving forth into the landscape and there's a Kathleen Jamie brilliantly describes it as the lone enraptured male. That's our kind of vision of this, this mm -hmm. person who strives out. But there's also this sense in your work of, of how African Americans have changed the landscape as well and who and, and have this 
kind of quite intense knowledge of it that they had to acquire. But, you know, that's actually a deeper connection than, than a lot of white Americans have now. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. Historically, so many of the plants that are at the base of a lot of American political, historical, and economic culture are plants that were grown by Africans and then Africans <laughs> on the American yeah. continent, rice and sugar and indigo and cotton and like on and on and on, like the, the sort of intelligence and connection. But also it more than those that I describe, I describe wild violets and sunflowers and these little plants that might show up in a cottage garden, which means something different. <laughs> really? Um, in the, well, I feel like to me, like in the UK, I would understand a cottage garden as being like a nice, like a lovely little retreat. <laughs> like, um, it, would be, it would be specifically like kind of big flouncy flowers that you let grow tall and let them kind of billow around. Like a, yeah, yeah. Like my dooryard, that what I describe as my dooryard. It sounds, it does. Yeah. You it does sound to me like you have a cottage garden. Yeah, in like yeah. my okay. in my terms, <laughs> in that little space. Yeah, okay. But I'm thinking in front of a slave cabin was what I was <laughs> what I meant. Yeah, um, in yeah. that in that sense, and that a lot of these plants that we might think of as ornamental now or weeds have the ability to give like incredible nutritional sustenance. And so the likelihood is that they were in the yards of cabins of enslaved people, not so much just to look at, but also to provide nutrition for this people who were being deprived of adequate nutrition. And so just the the canniness of that, like the, the wisdom of that, to be able to grow things that looked pretty enough to not <laughs> frustrate the enslaver, but also could be eaten. I am in reverence of people who have that kind of ability to make something beautiful <laughs> and self-supporting in really, really hard, impossible circumstances. Yeah, the, the plantsmanship of, of that is, is really breathtaking, actually. There's a there's a moment in the book that really, really gave me pause for thought because I've so often written in my own work about outsidership, I suppose, and what it means to know that you kind of occupy the edge of society. But you offered me a really fresh take on that when you wrote about the pastor who gave a, a sermon on like welcoming in outsiders can you can you describe it better than I'm about to describe it because I it really it really changed the way I thought about it yes so this particular sermon happened at a church my family had been going to for a while my daughter had gotten really connected with the children in the church including the pastor's daughter and like I was like fantastic I have this community it's really great and my family attended the service the Sunday after the 2016 presidential election. And my mother wrote a prayer card where she was praying desperately for all of, the, all of these groups of people who were really worried about the outcome of that election. And so she included people with disabilities and Muslim people and people without health insurance and Black people and queer people. Like she could, like her list was giant and Black people and women. And the pastor read this long list and then said, 
So let us pray for all the people who are on the outside of society looking in. And it was like, it was, it's still, when I say it still, it's just this gut punch. Like that's a very long list of people. And I thought this was my community. And the head of this you know group that I thought was my community has just included me and many of the people I love as outsiders <laughs> looking in. And it continues to be really hurtful, these moments of exclusion, particularly, honestly, that version of it, which was almost wholly unconscious, mm. not intended to be hurtful. Designed, you know, aimed to be kind, but actually, yeah. 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 Which then makes the trust so much harder to access for me because if somebody who is the leader of a community that I think I'm part of can sort of that easily make it clear that I'm not actually part of that community, (laughs) no matter what I think, like how, where is safe? So that story I write into the book again while thinking about the garden and this one particular plant in the garden that most gardeners do not love, (laughs) Um, which is field bindweed because it's such a, field bindweed is such a complicated plant, right? It got into my yard because I just, it looked pretty and it looked fine. It looked innocuous. And then eventually it'll just like... It is actually pretty. If you don't know what it's going to do, it's really Yeah. (laughs) And then it'll just take everything down, you know? It just chokes everything out around it. It just takes over. And it feels to me like that kind of subtle exclusionary behavior that like those versions of racism and sexism and whatever isms that feel like at first, like they're logical and they, they make a kind of sense. And it's just like, I'm looking out for myself or this is how it's always been done. Or I didn't really think about it. And it just like, it doesn't look harmful at first. And then it, it just, the roots go deeply. It's impossible to pull out. It's impossible mm. to change. Um, and it will tear the lovely, diverse, multiplicity-supporting parts of your garden down if you don't figure out how to pluck it very early. The perfect metaphor. (laughs) (laughs) Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Thank you.
I wonder if at this stage I could invite you to read a little more from the book, because I think it's a good point for it to have a, a breath and a pause. So Camille, what would you like to, to read next? We've talked about a couple of the sections that I thought I was going to read. So I'm sorry. Find, no, no, no. It's totally fine. I was trying to find a new spot. So I think this, this might work here. Every year, I start a new bed around Halloween when temperatures have cooled and we can expect our first snows and hard frosts. I must wait until nearly June before I see the blooms and bursts of color I labored so hard to welcome. The bachelor's buttons and poppies, blue flax, black-eyed Susan, echinacea's pinky purple comb flowers, columbine and hollyhocks can take two seasons to produce flowers. Changing our environment from homogenous to diverse is rewarding, but the process can be slow. Our garden regularly ruptures my sense of progress and process and time. There is the forward trajectory of days into months, seasons into years. June's tight rosebuds will lead to July's full-crowned blooms. Evident and irreversible change, straightforward as an arrow towards its mark. But there is revolution in the garden as well, and reversals. Months and seasons and days turning so far forward they bend backwards. I stand in the past and in the future when I stand in the present of our garden. Just as with grief, neatly outlined stages double back and return well after or long before I expect them to appear or be over. Mm, beautiful. Thank you. I would love to talk a bit about motherhood because it's a, it's a huge theme in this book. Both you as somebody who is, you know, the has been mothered uh, and, and who has inherited like the sort of scars and traumas of your parents as well as their I mean, you come from an incredibly accomplished, clever family, right? That seems to be like, <laughs> your parents are very impressive people. But also, you know, you as a mother and the quality that that mothering took during those pandemic months. We've both written about the conflict that we found ourselves in with partners when uh, when the, the parenting kind of fell to us because the, the partner had a, a more, I don't know, boundaried routine job than, than we had. Can you tell me a little bit about what it was like for you to, to parent through that time? In retrospect, I feel like it was maybe one of the best things that may have happened for me and my daughter, but it did not, it did not feel that way then <laughs> for her or for me. You know, she was nine, 10 years old and stuck in her house with her nearly 50-year-old mother. We had planned this really exciting spring break road trip down to Mesa Verde National Park where we would go to this ancient cliff dwelling and see the work of these ancestral native people. And like, that was going to be so much fun. And then instead she was like stuck at home with me doing like online worksheets <laughs> about, about yeah. Southwestern American history on the computer. And like, we were just clashing and, and I was not writing. I mean, I was supposed to be writing. And so this question that we're talking about, about the solitary outdoorsman who gets to mm. forsake his family, it just came directly in my face. Like the only way I was going to be able to write during that time was if I figured out how to write around the edges of this 
obligation that I had to my daughter. My parents are also really self-sufficient, but I did have these elderly parents that that were on my mind and like the caring for them as well in that sense. And I just ended up writing into the book, my puzzlement, that my confusion about why writing my family into the book didn't count, right? Like what, what happened all of a sudden when something becomes domestic? Why if I plant an otherwise wild native plant in my yard, it all of a sudden isn't wild anymore? Like what is that division? And what are the many ways in which those kinds of divisions are catastrophic to my ability to raise my daughter to survive in in the, in the actual world, right? So the book got a lot more threads in it, I guess, maybe would be a way of describing it because I all of a sudden couldn't do that thing that the tradition that I had been trained into told me was necessary. Yeah, it's it's so interesting to confront that at this point in history that, you know, what it means to be a writer and what our expectations are of being a writer and the kind of time it's allowed to take and the the vision we have of the, the person sitting at a desk undisturbed writing freely and it's not my experience of being a writer at all like my experience of being a writer has always been like getting up at 4 30 a.m to get a couple of hours in before work it's always been interrupting my afternoon to make sure I can pick up from school and or not always been or pick up from school and like cook dinner. Those are, I don't know, they're, they're these eternal artifacts of, of my writing. And certainly when I write about nature, I'm writing about an experience that seems really compromised by care to outside viewers. It, you know, it can be read as lacking commitment almost to it or lacking gumption somehow. Mm-hmm. Um, I really loved reading the, the sections where you talked about your friendship group, though your kind of WhatsApp friendship group, and and those those conversations that you were having between all of you. How important is that to 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 manage this kind of creative career? No, oh, those two writers, Catherine Miles and Suzanne Roberts, were the two women who I have a conversation with through 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 the course of the book. They pop in and share pithy. <laughs> pithy um, (laughs) notes and thoughts and so necessary to have people who are there to listen, right? And to talk back and to press against and to ask questions of like, why don't, you know, is this just me, you know, as part of it with that, when that, like one of the conversations that we have is, is I'm asking the two of them, like, like, why, why doesn't anybody have to do the dishes in these, in these kinds of books? And, and am I wrong, right? To think that I don't see this. And so having these two other really smart women who are big readers and also teachers and confirm (laughs) my assessment was, you know, that can be like, because it feels lonely sometimes. I feel sometimes like, clearly I've just haven't turned the right corner in the library, right? Somewhere in the library, there's like a whole treasure trip, but no. Now, I think Turns out not. Yeah. Yeah. Because because we're just not putting up with it. Like, it's just ridiculous. It doesn't make any sense, right? But like we talk in the text chain about some of those 
big names. And Suzanne pointed out that Edward Abbey was like half the time that he was out there writing Desert Solitaire. He was there with his wife and kids. Like he wasn't even solitary in the (laughs) desert. (laughs) I mean, that's adorable. That's adorable. (laughs) (laughs) What is that? It's like, you know, Thoreau's mom, take, you know, taking his laundry. <laughs> I mean, it's all, it's those. Uh, yeah, yeah, I mean, I feel like Thoreau is a really interesting, he's an interesting version of this because I think it's part of why this happens, right? And it's like when I, when I talk about Annie Dillard a great deal in the book, because she, in that first major book of hers, purposely crafted herself in Mm. this kind of line with these solitary men. But I don't think that Henry David Thoreau did. Like, I think that Henry David Thoreau was actually often really thinking about community. He's like, right, like I was in town and I came home and (laughs) I have enough chairs for three people, including myself. You know, like he actually does sort of talk about that communication and his other books that were published like right around the same time, Civil Disobedience and such, were like he was actively thinking beyond himself, but that's not the hagiography of HDT, right? Yeah, like how he's, the, yeah, like how he's the way saint, that yeah. he's been created yeah. as a saint uh, strips all that and puts him mm. all alone, right? And so I find that as interesting as the way that the authors themselves construct their presence, how the cultural reception is, right? Who were the writers we don't hear about because they had this work and therefore it's dismissed? And who are the writers who we do hear about because they've somehow, and how can we... You know, as with my garden, also like the yeah. when I moved in, it was an idea. It should look a certain way, and it just didn't make sense. And so I was gonna build a different garden that made sense to me. Similarly, my book, like I just that version stopped making sense to me, and so I wasn't gonna contort the book to fall into a tradition that stopped making sense. I was gonna create my own. It's a it's a lovely a lovely place for us to move on to. Uh... Just a couple of questions. Actually, one is just a comment saying that they love to hear about the idea of a fluffle of bunnies, which is, I think, pleasing to any ear. Um, isn't it a great word? <laughs> I, yeah, it's just perfect, isn't it? You want to bury your face in that word. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Hilary has asked, I was so interested in the idea of patience in the book, with the growing gardening, mothering and social world. I'm learning to slow down. Hopefully I'll find my quiet centre to write from. Can you talk? Oh, and, and and she adds like patience also in the work of anti-oppression, which feels like a a long a long piece of work. Can you talk a little bit about the role of patience in in your work? One of the things that was I think the word is difficult <laughs> for me in writing this book and revising it was the fact that. I actually didn't really know that much about gardening, right? <laughs> Going in, like, Shh, tell everyone. <laughs> I, I was learning um, as I was doing the project, and I was learning about these plants I was writing about. And I wanted to write a book that was honest in that way. Um, so I wanted to write a book in which I was vulnerable, in which I was humble, in which I was like, told you when I made mistakes <laughs> and you know what I learned from it if I did and that was hard because 
it felt to me like I'm writing a book. I should be the, I should be the authority. I should be the one who like shows this like complete unassailable wisdom. And I had to be patient with myself and my process of learning in order to reveal in the book my process of learning and my moments of fallibility and my moments of like, saying one thing about what a good marriage should look like and then like doing something completely different (laughs) almost instantly, right? (laughs) Um, To be able to do that, to be able to be honest in the way that I feel is necessary for any kind of true growth work, I had to just be deeply patient with my growing self. And the garden is great right for that because in order for me to learn how to garden i had to be paid i like you put the seeds in and then it's like months it's like forever it's like things don't just come and then like the squirrels get half the bulbs and um so they don't even like come up with it there and they like i thought like in the catalog they said that they would be this but they're kind of like that right like there's so much about gardening that teaches me to trust the process to be patient and to wait. So like it was a perfect partnership for me. Working on writing about learning how to create this garden, it was a great set of lessons and patience. But there's no way really to to be truly vulnerable, truly honest and and take the kinds of risks that, that need to be taken to build a better world without exercising a whole lot of patience with our ourselves and others. And here's to more books that are about learners rather than teachers and that share their process and that that draw us all into the reality of change because actually it's often in those intense moments of obsession where we learn to garden you know it doesn't happen over 20 years it happens in a season when we've completely fixated on it and and that's I think that's a lot of what your book shows Camille thank you so much it has been incredible to talk to you I've worked my way through my very chaotic overexcited notes um, and, <laughs> and I'm so grateful to you. Thank you. I really appreciate. Thank you for taking the time and your evening um, the chat and all your listeners for being here. We will be back very soon. But uh, for today, wherever you are, thank you for being here. And I hope to see you all soon. Bye-bye. Thank you, everyone. Bye-bye. Well, as I'm sitting here, I'm just contemplating a big desk tidy over the Christmas period. I think it's time. I like to pretend I work in a very clean, ordered space, but actually my desk gets piled high with books all the time. And after a while, it begins to feel really intimidating. and I have to do a massive clear out. Unfortunately, I only have a certain number of bookshelves, so that normally means I have to get rid of some old books as well, and that's a very painful process. But there we go. Life is all about cycles of renewal. And it's quite sad to come to the end of a cycle with this podcast. I began it when I was in the middle of the pandemic. Well, sorry, maybe not the middle, kind of quite early on. And just feeling really isolated, feeling like I was losing opportunities to make contact with other people working in the same areas as me. And it was just 
immediately really wonderful to be able to get in touch with other writers and to say, I love your work. Can we just talk for an hour and I'll record it? And when it began, I was recording it myself and editing it myself. And as time went on, that became quite overwhelming. So for the last couple of years, I've been working with the fantastic producer Buddy, who is editing this episode. And I just want to say thank you to him. He has done an amazing job of that, of looking after this brilliant podcast. And also to Megan, who does the kind of more organisational production on this podcast. I've been working with the most amazing team and we're all continuing to work together in other ways. But for now, I'm just calming it down a little bit. If you join me over on my Substack, you'll still find so much content from me, much of it free. So I really hope you'll join me there, katherinemay.substack.com, and that you'll continue to listen to all the brilliant people I'm talking to on the book club, because I will never stop enjoying those conversations. I'm feeling the massive honour that it is when people say yes when I ask them to talk to me. Thank you, everyone. Have a happy Christmas and I'll see you really soon. And that's all for this episode. Thanks for being here to explore how we live now. This podcast is presented by Catherine May, produced by Megan Hutchins and Buddy Peace, with social media by Sarah Horner and communications by Becca Pierce. Buddy Peace also composed the wonderful incidental music. For updates, show notes, transcriptions and plenty of stories, subscribe to my newsletter at katherinemay.substack.com where you can also upgrade to support the show and join my vibrant community of readers, writers and wanderers. And finally, if you enjoyed my podcast, please consider buying my new book, Enchantment. There's a link in the show notes. See you next time. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.